I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Effie Parks, and I'm so happy that you're here. Thanks for tuning in today. I want to talk about Rare Disease Day, okay? The last day of February, the rarest day of the year sometimes. What are you doing? What are your plans? I know a bunch of my friends are going to be in D.C., which is so cool. I can't wait to see footage from that. Do you have any events that you're hosting or attending? Are you going to something online? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Send me uh, messages or comments or, you know, tag me on Twitter or something. I want to know what you're doing uh, so I can help share your events. I am co-hosting a super cool rare soiree with my girlfriend, Jill Hawkins from FAM177A1. It's going to be at this gorgeous art gallery in Bellevue, Washington. We're going to have cocktails and food and music. We're auctioning off art and other goodies, and we're raising money for our foundations. It's going to be an awesome night and we're hoping to live stream a good portion of it. So I'll keep you posted. And if you're available to pop in, that'd be super cool. We may even figure out a way to do a couple bids for online people if you want to join in on the auction. So it'll be super cool. Anyways, I can't wait to hear what you're doing. Uh, Rare Disease Day is always so fun and vibrant. So yeah, keep me posted. Today's guest, Holy Cannoli. I think she needs to have a movie made about her story. It is long and interesting and powerful. Her boys, Alexander and Daniel, were born in the early 90s, you know, right before the internet was a thing. And she didn't have a diagnosis for them. And they kept kind of falling further behind, age old story. And eventually uh, she turned to genetic testing. And she couldn't just turn to genetic testing. Okay, you're going to hear from her story. She like basically figured it out and then had a scientist like go over it and like help get this diagnosis of AGU, which is a rare and fatal disorder. During those 16 years, they never gave up looking for answers. It was 16 years until they got that diagnosis, by the way. And they just never gave up. And I got to read something from her website that just moved me so much. And I think so many can relate to to this. It says, the inspiration came from Alexander, our intuitive little Spider-Man. One day he said, mommy, don't cry. Let's watch a movie. Of course, it was a Spider-Man movie. The one that ends with the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. After the movie, Alexander asked me, why responsibility comes with power? At that instant, I knew the answer because I have the power of knowing what's wrong with the kids Now I have a great responsibility for these two human beings and all the others to find the cure. She is the founder of raretrait.org, helping to create the gene therapy that is going into clinical trials, pushed by just this foundation at this point. They're doing incredible work. Her story is mind-blowing, and I have so much respect and love for this woman. Please uh, enjoy my conversation with Julia Travella. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. You're one of my new favorite people that I've found. Well, actually, you found me. So thank you. I can't believe I didn't know you existed after meeting you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're fascinating and brilliant. And I can't wait for this community to meet you and learn from you. So thanks. You have two adult. Are the are both the boys adults? How old are your boys? They are 27 and 22. Wow. Okay. They adult, but they called adult child. 
adult child. Got it. Well, you've been in the caregiving and rare disease space for a lot longer than most of our friends listening. So we have a lot to learn from you. Can you take us back to the beginning? I know like most parents, you had no idea anything was going on when your boys were little. And then you started seeing missed milestones. Let's take it from there. Thank you for having me. And I'm really happy to share all of our experience. It's been, like you said, it's been a long, long road. With my oldest son, Daniel, I started noticing something not right probably by the time he was like three. And what was not right is before three, he was having lots of ear infections. And he finally had tubes placed in his ears probably by like two and a half. And the doctor said that, oh, just a couple more weeks and he will be starting talking normal. And that couple more weeks turned into three months, six months, in addition to like extensive uh, speech therapy. I mean, he had speech therapy probably at that time, like three times a week, which the middle 1990s, I guess he was born in 94, middle of 1990s, that was um, a lot of speech therapies. <laughs> so a couple of years down the road, he was not speaking correctly. He went to school and kindergarten and first grade they were telling me that he is doing like low average when his brother was born when daniel was five i almost kind of start noticing little things alexander was like one or two and we tried to put him in all of those early i don't remember how's those programs called i think um early start development early, early intervention yeah so early, early, it's like early start developments i i put them in him into those programs like right away when he was like the first e infections he had and they put tubes in his ears at like one year old that's time he went to those programs but i still start noticing then although it helped a lot but he started having the same delays as his brother so that's how it's all started Back then in like early 2000s, I remember trying to go and do the testing for genetic diseases because to me, it was very surprising. My background, I have double major chemistry and chemical engineering. <laughs> By that time, I kind of suspected like how come two kids have almost kind of identical presentation of developmental delays. So I speculated at the time that it was genetic, but it was extremely difficult to get any genetic tests at those times. And insurance got denied us multiple times. So I started going to the doctors and trying to figure it out what's going on with the kids, maybe based on their symptoms, not genetics. So we went to anybody from dermatologist, I mean, pediatrician, of course, was our main doctor, but then from dermatologist to neurologist to developmental pediatrician, that's the other very interesting um, specialty that I didn't know exists, but we actually learned a lot from that person. Geneticists, of course, we went to geneticists and did a lot of other tests besides genetic testing, and nothing worked. Nothing, nothing worked. Uh, everything was actually fine. Everything was in range. But the kids were kind of behind at school. Their language, although they talked, their language was way behind their peers. The older one didn't, he knew his alphabet, he knew his colors, but he had trouble reading. I mean, they tried and to me it's like my heart uh, was breaking because I can see how, I could see how they were trying very, very hard to kind of catch up to uh, their friends, but it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, doctors try to do their best. It's just, I think my view was like overall system. You would go to one doctor and he will do all the tests and everything will be average to low average. Go to another doctor, it will be the same. But the most difficult thing was actually putting it all together. And that's one of the things that kind of nobody looked at just because the way how the system works. And I guess the disease that my kids have is extremely rare and um, almost impossible to diagnose at that time. In 2008, the geneticists did the urine test for the disease that my kids have. 
and the test came back actually negative, but it's with the note that the sample is dirty. And I remember talking to geneticist um, by that time, like I kind of knew the doctors by the first names and we communicated by the first names already. And I remember I said, I told geneticist, uh, I was like, how can you tell me that the sample was dirty? I'm a chemist. It's my job actually <laughs> to learn how to take samples, <laughs> including biological samples. That's what uh, I studied in college. And his reply was very interesting. Uh, he told me, you really don't want your child to have a lysosomal storage disorder which is, that's what they have, because there's no treatment. So <laughs> that was a very interesting reply. It's like, you don't want to keep looking because it could be really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's what's kind of interesting. It is, it's just, um, very scary, you know, to trying to get diagnosis. And then all of a sudden the diagnosis would be something that is very fatal, you know, and no treatment. That's what actually we end up having. Man, so you're on this diagnostic odyssey. It's 2008. Testing's getting better. And then all of a sudden there are these like glamour genetic test kits on the market. Uh, yes, that was already actually by that time it was 2000, I think 10 or 11 when the first kind of, how to say, direct-to-consumer uh, genetic tests came. And one of the, I was itching to um, trying to do those genetic tests. And I remember the very first ones that came to market was like $500 a piece or $800 a piece, something like that. Very, very ex extremely expensive. And think about it, it was like uh, 15 years ago, something like that. Um, the very first, um, I bought two of them for me and my husband as a Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> so we did, and I figured out, okay, if my kid, both kids have something, it might be something in mine and my husband's um, DNA. But those genetic tests that, although they were like $800 back then, there was still not full genome sequencing. There was, um, they were like kind of, let's say, partial, like, probably testing like 50% of um, genetic material. And I went through in the report um, that came back, actually there was nothing, um, no problem with that. I can see that I was carrier, for example, for PKU, which is also a rare disease, but my husband was not. So things like that. So it was like, okay, I need to dig some more. Maybe it was um, some kind of, well, maybe I thought that it was not tested, but maybe it's some, some kind of spontaneous mutation came with both kids, you know? So what, and the interesting part is for like 10 years trying to figure out the kid's diagnosis, because they're both boys, I've been told many, many times that it's probably X-linked. X-link uh, disease, so essentially it is the female is the carrier, but when um, you get it in the boys, it is because boys is having X and Y chromosome, and females have two X chromosomes, so one of them compensating for the other ones, um, so the boys usually have those types of diseases. Those types of diseases affect boys, not girls. So I've been told that many, many times. I think that's also kind of an issue that I see because, you know, it's like, I remember feeling so bad, you know, I was like, okay, um, it is, I mean, I've been almost told like, you know, okay, you have two boys. So what's, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking about? You know, it's the X-linked um, disease, developmental disorder. So yeah, have a girl <laughs> almost, you know, but like six months after our first initial tests, we got some more tests and tested kind of like more, so tested both kids and tested like very close relatives that we have, so grandparents too. And uh, what the results also came inconclusive. So everything that um, shows there was on original kind of review panel for um, those direct-to-consumer product, it didn't show anything. Oh, actually, um, so the product that we use, surprisingly, I mean, I think by now everybody knows that it's called 23andMe. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with that, Effie, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> 
there is a very interesting tab there when you look at that, that is download raw data. And that's what I did. So now by that time I had mine and my husband's data and I had my both kids data. So I downloaded and at that time I started looking um, back to the doctors. Maybe somebody will help me understand what the raw data is about. So that was 2011 and everybody looked at me like, Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> So the doctors at that time, um, I went back to a couple of doctors. They didn't believe that anything can be done from consumer tests. That was the belief back then. I have a data with lots of unknowns. So I was like, okay, I'm going to find out the person who can tell me something. So the interesting part is I found um, people who process those types of information, the discipline called bioinformatics. That's the people who process those genetic data. So I found a guy, a really, really nice guy on internet. He had a company that could analyze the data. He said that he will clean up the data for me, meaning that out of millions of gigabyte of data, I would get something that is like useful. So I will get the results only with like mutation. I will get the data with some kind of issues. All the cleanup data, he will clean it up. And as a result, I get back much smaller file, probably about five to 10% of the original file, but still was big, big data. So, and then it was up to me to try to, he said that he really could not spend more time on that because otherwise it would be to dig a lot more and to spend his time. So he was busy. So I accepted that. So I went to university to take genetic classes. <laughs> it's like one thing after another, you know? <laughs> John, thank God you at least have the internet by now on your Odyssey. Like, <laughs> gosh. So for the next six months, I took genetic classes at university online. And in the end of six months, I actually wrote a program to analyze the data. So what I did is analyzed my and my husband's hypothetical child in comparing to our real children. Okay, so after six months, you wrote a program to analyze your genetics. So I could write programs. I just needed to find out what's, what is the genetics all about. My kids have AGU. That's the name of the disease. And we looked what it is, AGU. So at that time, all of the information that was published on AGU um, was published describing Finnish mutation that is very prevalent in Finland. And I kind of was not surprised because my mother's ancestry is Finnish. So I was like, okay, I see where I'm getting it from. It took me another three months to verify it with the doctors. Then the doctors collected uh, blood work and urine work, sent it to the labs. I think we did it like three or four times because it is, this particular disease has expressed enzymes. So um, it is the biomarkers in the blood and in a urine too. And the results we got back, you so say, yes, that's what they have. Unbelievable. You sleuthed it out and you figured it out. I would say it was a good thing that we were able to get kind of our kids diagnosis, understanding, like internalizing, not get diagnosis, but internalizing that like several months apart. So the disease that my kids have called aspartyl glucosaminuria, that's a big word. So the short one is AGU. It is lysosomal storage disorder. Um, one of, I think, 49 lysosomal storage disorders. It is, that, so they're missing the enzyme um, that breaks down um, cellular, so it is cellular protein, cellular enzyme that breaks down glucoproteins. I'm getting lots of questions. It's like, okay, if it is metabolic disorder and its enzyme breaks down, can they, can we kind of help with different food choices, you know, give them, not giving them some type of proteins. Unfortunately, glucoproteins is uh, what's a lot of that is what bodies producing. 
which is like say examples of glucoproteins are hormones for example things like that so it's something that's bodies produce and so it is something that's um kind of affects person all the time agu is extremely rare diseases so out of um let's say 200 parents um and um doctors that was at that conference there was nobody with agu there was people with other glucoprotein lysosomal diseases that's another like probably about 150 caregivers and probably about 50 kids um there so that's what it helps it helped a lot um to met new families and to um to connect that was great i think it's it it's it's you agree correct it changes everything right when it's not just you and your husband like living in this darkness and being terrified and feeling alone you find this whole big world and luckily you found it at a conference right away which is life changing yes yes indeed indeed and it's because i mean you know how lonely it is like people is um people don't know anything about your disease it is so difficult to talk about your disease to um everybody so who did you meet at the conference what happened at the conference that lit another fire interestingly um at that conference i met um one of the person who kind of i guess he inspired me to try to figure it out how it all works so i met emil kakis at that conference and i think everybody knows emil kakis now <laughs> yep everybody knows <laughs> i also met um several other parents with other lysosomal storage disorders that also worked although the gene therapy was not the uh, kind of the treatment of choice back then it was enzyme replacement therapies that was and that's what Emil Kakis worked on at that times but nevertheless it's kind of gave me hope that maybe maybe just maybe something can be done immediately right after that i kind of frantically start writing emails to anybody that I could find in the literature and that's probably I think all the parents do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's I always have that gif of that cat like hammering on the computer that's every parent uh, emailing people who have published papers on their <laughs> on their kids rare disease so I think maybe that I wrote like maybe 200 emails to anybody who published any anything about AGU for like the previous 30 years the disease was discovered like in late 60s there was from what i've seen there was lots of work done in like um, 80s and 90s but then everything stopped nobody worked on that disease like in 2010 there was not a single group although the disease was very prevalent i guess i think it's the most common rare disease in finland so i contacted the finnish group the finnish doctor she invited me to come to finland to to meet with her because she is um one of the doctors that knows a lot and did a lots of research on agu it's dr maria arvio and meet other agu parents over there and also interestingly they told me that like within like a week of my contact a family from france also contacted them and they said we'll we'll bring you at the same time so you can meet i was like yay so on the way to finland we stopped in germany and in germany and the reason is um actually so the researcher that did her phd in trying to find out the uh, the 3d folding of the enzyme for agu worked in germany so we met and got to know each other at that time she said that she's not working on the agu anymore it was her phd thesis like 20 years prior to that but she's actually really interested to restart the research that was the only reply i got out of those 200 emails <laughs> wow 
So, and that's where our research started. Man, I'd like to think that people respond a little more often now. What do you think? Uh, I would say, no, I, I cannot say that. So probably I got another maybe 10 responses back. And, um, but what I meant by response is, uh, you know, the response, something like, okay, I'm so sorry that your child have this, but we don't know anything about it. You know, that's what I mean. It's, it is reply, but it's not, nothing I can do with that reply. So this angel is like, sure, you know what? Why not? I'll go dust off my AGU research. Is this when you decided to start a foundation? Did she recommend that you do that? Um, no, no. The person was in Germany. So what we did is we actually kind of start talking. It's like, okay, if you know so much, can you please tell me more about it? What type of treatments can be have can can be done? You know, and what what we can do? You know, what what, what is even out there that I can figure it? We can figure it out. You know, that's. And um, that's kind of what she is. So she is kind of biochemist. She knows lots of biology and specifically biology of their uh, proteins. When we stopped in Germany, and that's what she did, she kind of wrote down for me, it's like, okay, this is the options for treatment of this particular genetic disease. It can be enzyme replacement because it's expressed enzyme, correct? And that's, we, we know a lot, that's what Emil Kakis is actually is expert in, enzyme replacement treatment. Then it is genetic disease, so you probably can do something with gene therapy. It's not um, like you really, I, she, she told me, she said, I really don't know which one, how and what, but yes, you can go look for people who do gene therapy, you know? <laughs> By that time, I didn't know the kids' mutations yet. So we didn't do detailed genetic testing for their specific mutations to prove that's like how we need to proceed. And so she said that it probably can be done something on their um, genetic mutations. And you need to do this and this and this for us to see which way to go. But genetic mutation, that's where the treatments come, like chaperone therapy or CSOs. That's what's very popular right now. Can you just briefly explain what chaperone therapies are? Chaperone therapy is, so it is the other word for chaperone therapy, small molecule therapy. Okay. So essentially, small molecule gets in a place of that particular mutation. And when protein folds, it actually either closes that problem with the folding or kind of acts as, a, um, as the molecule that makes the protein function. That's probably the easiest ways to. Okay. My kids was on that um, chaperone therapy for probably since 2014 now. And I think that's what's keeping them alive because when I look at my kids, the natural uh, progression of the disease is by 25, they kind of completely stop talking and um, start deteriorating. Boys progressing a lot earlier than girls for some reason. We don't know why. But nevertheless, um, usually the life expectancy was 25 to 35 years. Something on your website that struck me, I'm not sure where I found it, but it just said, patients, question mark. No, just kids destined to die. I appreciate that very direct explanation and I get it. I mean, looking back now, what we did, I think we made the right decision to focus on two treatments. And now with all the work that is done, I know that there is talking about somebody studying um, enzyme replacement uh, therapies possibly doing which is also good. The chaperone therapy clinical trials in Finnish mutation um, started, I think, more than three years ago now. It's actually have a wonderful results, and they found um, several um, interesting facts about that. It's actually showing the clearing of kind of the disease deposits in the brains. There were several, three or four articles were published already so far, so... I'm just kind of relaying what, what researchers find. So it's great to raise money for that expensive treatment for the child. 
I know that you have worked with or are you still working with Dr. Stephen Gray on your gene therapy? Most people listening know know that name, especially if they heard the episode with Terry on SPG and the SPG50 and the gene therapy that was produced there. Yes. So all of the preclinical work was done by Steve. Uh, yes, we still work very close. So he is, he will be, and he is part of the, our IND submission as the person that did all the preclinical stuff. Uh, he did a great job. So where are you at now? What are What is your next step and what's on hold? So we did produce our toxicology batch and we started the toxicology um, studies. So we had pre-IND. Yeah, that's probably is interesting discussion is we're supposed to start our, our clinical trial sometimes in 2018. <laughs> and here we are for years. <laughs> so we actually had a pre-IND meeting. That's the meeting with FDA to kind of review all of your uh, preclinical research. So we had that meeting so Steve actually led the meeting. We had that meeting in 2018. It was actually a very successful meeting, and that's where we asked FDA if we can use rats for our toxicology study instead of primates, and that's where uh, FDA agreed on. A uh, small pharmaceutical company got interested in the disease and acquired a license from university to proceed and they worked on the development from let's say 2018 and like everybody knows that in the last year there was lots of economic downturn and lots of diseases were dropped off by pharmaceutical company and we were one of those oh, oh god that hurts my heart yes yes so they made an official announcement like in January this year, but kind of already had stud feeling because almost everything stopped. You know, you can see pharmaceutical company very eager and doing stuff. So in 18, 19 and like 20, it slows down and like there's nothing after like 2020. If nonprofit organization funded the research, what I did uh, in the very beginning, I actually signed something that's called sponsorship agreement. And what it does, it gives you their research and educational IP rights. So what it is, that means that, um, so clinical trial is also part of the research. So literally, uh, even if commercial company doing commercial development and doing clinical trials for commercial development, if nonprofit have their research rights, they can proceed parallel to commercial company. That's actually happened. I know that um, another clinical trial that Steve got, I um, think it's CLN7. So commercial company had that, but also the foundations was funded the clinical trial in UT Southwestern uh, parallel to the foundations, um, uh, to, to commercial company having the commercial development. At the same time, when the pharmaceutical company that we had was kind of, um, was not doing anything. I started the process. The process of the gene therapy production and toxicology is pretty long. So I think I start preparing and sequencing of the plasmid and then plasmid manufacturing sometimes summer last year. And we finished the production of the toxicology batch in June this year. Literally, like in six months, we will be able to start our clinical trial. Yay. Woo! Oh, my gosh. How are you so savvy going back to that sponsorship agreement? Because we've heard so many just gut-wrenching stories of patient groups having their projects shelved and then not having any access to it. So people are definitely more hip to the part of like having to own IP, but it seems like maybe you were a little ahead of that. There's lots of talks about that. And that, I mean, I'm not, and that's just my knowledge out of everybody whom I talk to, you know, I'm not an IP lawyer. From what I've seen, there is a three, well, major two types of IPs, yes. IP commercial. And whenever you just use the word IP, most of the time they're talking about commercial IP. So literally you have that IP 
and you will be able to like make a product out of that and market it after that. That's the IP you're talking about. There is also IP, research IP. And actually this is the basis of what most of the research is done. Like if you are going to make money out of that, you have to pay us. But if you are just going to research and understand the product, that's the research IP. But you also have the access to all of the products. And, and that's one of the things. So at that time, Steve, Dr. Dr. Gray was still in UNC, University of North Carolina. And that's when we signed the, the agreement for them to do the work. Number one, you have to put something in place. If you are going to give money to the university or to anybody, you have to sign something with that particular organization because otherwise that money will be looked as, as a donation. Maybe focused donation, maybe donation doing donation for that particular kind of research, but it will be looked as a donation versus sponsored research. So that's kind of it's little, too little bit different. Donations, what it means that you're giving money to university and they can do within that limit that you told them whatever they want versus if you put some kind of paper for sponsored research and the paper, I mean, if anybody would be interested in, I'll be able to, I, I can share what we, document we put. It's only, it was actually one piece of paper. Uh, I mean, yeah, one page, one page saying that we are sponsoring this particular research as the result of the sponsorship, the university agrees or researcher agrees to share, share the data back for us. So yes, we have the data as a result of that, of our sponsorship. And we have research, research and educational rights for that research, meaning that we, continue, we can continue research on that product for wherever they will want. And research includes clinical trial because it's still research. You don't have the marketable product till you will go to market authorization with authority, FDA or AMA. Brilliant. So how are you going to ensure that the boys make it in the clinical trial? Is that a thing? <laughs> it should be for rare, but I know that's not the case. The PI that we use, I mean, I cannot, um, at one point I probably will be, I will excuse myself from like a detailed management of the research just it's just kind of um, not be involved in the um, conflict of interest of something like that. Research is or clinical trials. It's I would say it's first come first serve basis. Most of the time it's done correct. When qualifying, I mean that's complicated. Everybody has to qualify. Like all of the patients have to qualify. But then parents submit the data to the PI correct. But they submit the data, well, they're, they're your, your interest into doing clinical trial, yes. But also the PI has to say, okay, we need the data, correct? So it is kind of if the parents, let's say, or if somebody is not close enough to know what's going on, they will not be able to submit the data. So it's kind of first come, first serve basis. <laughs> Well, you'll be on top of that one. Yeah. Right on top of that, Rose. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think are the three biggest mistakes that families are making right now in developing their gene therapy programs? Or what are three things to make sure to watch out for or to include? One of the things that, as I was, as I was saying, I mean, it's very important to put that paper together in the very beginning of the research so that differentiates your donation versus sponsored research. Indeed, the universities is putting up lots of kind of lots of effort and lots of resources also parallel to you. So yes, they have rights to probably commercial IP. That paper that's put in place with university and understanding, you know, like it's almost like a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> Yeah. Whenever you get married, you need to know what will happen when you'll get divorced. <laughs> and all of those companies or universities shelving the research, that's the divorce. So don't go and give half a million dollars to a researcher without the results, without knowing what you will get in return. I mean, and that's what's whenever you ha whenever parents have that eager 
trying to do something and all of a sudden they did the raise millions of dollars due to whatever circumstances or they have some kind of uh, money in the bank and they will they will be able to fund that initial research don't give researcher um half a million dollars and say okay develop that for me and that's one of the things that what i was study kind of as a project manager for the company that i worked before that so essentially do step by step the first step is to if you're doing gene therapy, so you're developing plasmid and you're testing it. Oh, not plasmid, construct, sorry. You're developing the construct, so essentially it is your gene uh, of interest, in how it fits in the vector or in a virus. So um, there are several ways can be developed. So you're developing then and you have to test it. I mean, um, and different researchers have different preferences. Some test it in the fibroblast as what we did. Somebody testing right now in pluripotent stem cells. Somebody's testing it in small cohort of mice. But this is kind of your um, you you understand whether it's it's actually working or not. You kind of doing your concept selection, and that's cost. It doesn't cost half a million dollars. So yes, just pay for this first, and see if you'll get the results within the specific time frame, which probably should be a couple months to six months. You know. And then you can see that as a result, they have to, the researcher have to prove to you that this is what I made. This is the medicine. Essentially, I made the construct. And this is the result of that uh, treatment and the production of the protein, the transport of the protein or something. There is some kind of uh, marker. It's increased before that, it was zero. After that, it was 10. So this is the first step. Once researcher finished that and you get the data, you see that you start getting developing relationship with that researcher. And after that, okay, you need to develop a bigger cohort. You need to produce, first you need to produce that particular construct, a research grade construct, which is usually done somewhere in university, in a lab, or it's very, very cheap to produce that. Or there are several commercial companies and that particular cost is maybe a couple thousand dollars only. Next, you produce that particular piece of kind of your project of your research. So you produce the medicine, then you test it in a mice or in this particular case, when you do the bigger one in a mice. Where do you get the mice? Who is breeding the mice? The, the colony needs to be pretty big because you have to submit that efficacy data of the results to the FDA, EMA, or whatever, another authority. Then you kind of do step-by-step -step developments, and that's what will help eventually to develop the, the proper app report with your researcher to kind of to develop the trust that is very very important you know to understand where it goes and where money goes but to me it's like one of the next thing is don't give half a million right on day one because maybe you will see that um, the other way is um, there, there is a easier ways to do something somewhere and have the understanding who is doing what. That was one of mis my mistakes that I call it a team. It's the big team that we worked on. There was people in US, Steve uh, Gray, the professor in Germany. She did all of the biochemical support and all the developing essays and production. So, and me in the middle of that. And I remember, I mean, the researchers, they really want to, to show how good they're working. They want to publish. Their goals is to publish the research. That's how they're getting recognized. So you just have to have open line of communications with everybody all the time. That's the talk, talk, talk updates. Don't just leave it there out in a space because sometimes one person finished something, but thinking that the other person calls to ask for the data, but then the other person is thinking, okay, you finished the data, you have to give it back to me. So you have to continuously have that communications kind of updates. Okay, you did the information, please forward the data. Let's do this. So yeah. So you got to get a prenup. You got to diversify. Yep. And you have to know everyone's jobs and be relentless. Yes. That's that's very good summary. 
everything that you are clearly really good at. All of us are project managers. Yeah. Do you know if it's a thing to go back? Like if you're a patient advocacy group who gave a researcher at a academic site a bunch of money and said, do this. Is there a way to go back and ask them to sign this agreement? Do you think they would? Has that ever worked? I actually, it's all depends. So it's not the researcher is, I think it's the development office uh, in the university. Some of the universities I actually have seen on their websites, they actually state that all of the donations for the researcher's work is actually considered to be sponsorship agreements. So some of them will just go and do it right away. You just need to go and talk. I mean, you don't ask, you never know. (laughs) Well, I'm ready for your course. I think you should be teaching one. You're very smart and it's just, your story is remarkable, Julia. Like thinking about being a mother a new mother to these kids on this diagnostic odyssey with no internet and continuing forward in the way that you did and using your skills to find their diagnosis and then build this organization and gather your patients and put together all of this research. It's just parents like you blow my mind and you're such a valuable resource to so many. And I think that what you have to offer is so unique and I'm so excited to know you. Thank you. Thank you. I applaud Terry. Terry was able to do exactly the same work in whatever, three, three and a half years. Faster? (laughs) Yes. I think it will take us 10 years, but I learned a whole lot (laughs) during this 10 years. No kidding. (laughs) No kidding. What are you like most excited about right now? What's lighting you up? What's giving you like all this fuel and momentum? Like what keeps you going? Other than keeping the boys alive. Other than that one. I think, of course, seeing my kids. So I went to North meeting the other week and I had to take my youngest son with me. He totally enjoyed everybody at the meeting. He just was fascinating with all of the. I'm kind of surprised that uh, with his brain as probably eight-year-old boy, but nevertheless, he really enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Maybe after gene therapy, he will become a brain scientist, you know? Who knows? Maybe. (laughs) But the interesting part is, so they asked um, for everybody's position, and of course, I wrote what my position is, but he was present there, and I was like, okay, how can I call his position, you know? So his position was goalkeeper. (laughs) I love that. So that's my goalkeeper. (laughs) My both kids are. But the interesting part is, it is scary. It is, and the parents in our foundation, like I know they are diving with with, the fundraising. We still have like probably 1.8 million to raise to pay for the drug before the clinical trial. And we still have to put together the clinical trial and IND and all of that stuff. But to me is the exciting part, I think we really can help the next people that's coming alone avoid the mistakes. Now I'm, I think I'm really, really good in recording everything that putting together everything that I'm doing and trying to figure out okay why is this why is why why this has happened how can I avoid next time we did it one time I think we can do it the second time much easier yeah (laughs) the interesting fact is out of the yes and we know that um the AV um is the small vector um that is can be used not for all of the diseases but the amount of the diseases it can be used for is actually 80 percent wait say that again that's (laughs) do you know like how um, we know that there is lots of companies talking about how many are there um, rare diseases and ultra rare diseases correct so we're always counting the numbers Mm-hmm. But what I did recently, I actually took exactly the same databases that all those companies are using, also added one extra database on the top of that is if the disease is genetic, what is enzyme is expressing 
and what is the size of that enzyme. And what I found out that 80% of genetic diseases, the size of the enzyme is so that can be fit in AV virus. Awesome. So what that means that, you know, <laughs> you have lots of work to do and we have lots of work to do <laughs> because majority of the diseases can be actually treated with AV gene therapy. Yeah. 80. That's amazing. 80% is a lot. Yeah. I could just talk to you for a long time, forever and always, but this won't be the end of our conversations. And I hope that you're comfortable getting emails because there's going to be some of those parents that are like cats pounding on their computer messaging you with questions. And I'm also very happy to know you and see you in the circuit because you have a lot of experience to share in so many different in so many different areas. So thanks, Julia, for everything that you're doing for families like ours. And your boys are so beautiful and happy and sweet. And you're awesome. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And I think we um, we can all um, help each other. Somebody. Uh, one of the things that what I learned actually is with the parents that's involved in our community, different parents have different strengths. Somebody's good at this, somebody's good at that. But whenever we put everybody together, we have something. And I think we can uh, project it to um, a lot bigger audience. You know, we have something together with the rare disease community. I think we can figure it all out. Amen. All right, Julia, thank you for being my guest on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to everyone meeting you. Thank you so much. And I'm really happy we had that. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 